Welcome back, podcast listeners. This is Austin Roberts. Here on the EcoCiv podcast, we engage leading thinkers in conversations about the kinds of transformations required to create a more sustainable, peaceful, and equitable world. If you enjoy this podcast, you can help support the work that we are doing by making it a donation at ecociv.org. Today, Andrew Schwartz talks with author and activist David Corton. A former professor of the Harvard Business School, David later became a prominent critic of the globalized economy and the ever-growing power of corporations over societies. His work now focuses on the need to transform the globalized economy in the direction of an ecological civilization. David is the author of the international bestseller, When Corporations Rule the World, along with other popular books like The Great Turning, From Empire to Earth Community, and most recently, Change the Story, Change the Future, A Living Economy for a Living Earth. David talks with Andrew about the trajectory of his work, the limits to economic growth, the notion of sustainable development, economic inequality, integrating the sciences and religious traditions, what gives him hope, and many other topics. And now, here's Andrew and David. Well, I am with David Corton, a renowned author, former professor, political activist, prominent critic of global, uh, sort of corporate globalization, and a leading figure in the ecological civilization movement. So welcome, David. Delighted to be with you. I'd like to start with a little bit about your story. You're perhaps best known for your um, book, at least to date, your most famous book, When Corporations Rule the World. And in that book, you sort of blow the whistle on the destructive and oppressive nature of our global economic system, which just happens to be a system that worships money as the sole purpose of economic life, and it puts power in the hands of just a few with virtually no accountability. I think you can see some problems there. But I'm curious on how a former Harvard business professor becomes one of the leading voices that's criticizing corporate rule. Yeah, it's an interesting story. It, uh, it it's, intrigues me also. Um, and it's, you know, it's part of the story of, of, uh, of my generation in a way. Uh, you know, we, we both grew up in a town called Longview, Washington, as I recall. That's right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think it was still when you were there, but when, when I grew up in it, it was, uh, you know, very middle class. It was, totally white, except for the people that ran the Chinese restaurant in town. I sometimes refer to, you know, the most exotic person in my life was my aunt, who was a Catholic with red hair. And, you know, my my family was in business there. They had a music and appliance store. It was very successful. And uh, I grew up all the way till the very end of uh, my undergraduate college, assuming that my future would be to go back and run that family business. So where the change came was in my senior year at Stanford, the psychology major, I took a senior colloquium, a two-unit course outside my major on modern revolution. And I was at that time a very conservative young Republican. And I was very concerned about the threat that these communist revolutions posed to our American way of life. 
So I thought this would be a useful thing since I had to take something outside my major. Uh, I'll learn about that. Well, what I learned about was that the threat of these revolutions came from the desperations of the poor. And that really struck me. I think in a way I didn't ever really want to go back and run that business. But what struck me was, well, perhaps I should spend my life, I'll go ahead and go to business school as I'd already planned to do, but to become more proficient in modern American business teachings so that I can go abroad and I can spread the message of the secrets of U.S. business success, economic success. We can make all the rest of the world happy consumers like us, and we'll be through with this revolution nonsense. So that was, <laughs> that was what drove me originally. So then over the course of some 30 years that followed, living in, included living for years in, in Africa and Central America, and then 15 years in Southeast Asia, I began to realize that what was actually happening as the things that people were learning from America were spreading out through the world was that more and more people were becoming ever more desperate. Uh, we were destroying the environment and the capacity of Earth to support life. And somehow it seemed to relate to the things that we from the United States and the other Western democracies, quote, uh, were bringing out to the rest of the world, supposedly to, to save them. And so that began this deeper exploration. I connected up with groups like the International Forum on Globalization, which were many of the leading thinkers in the world that were essentially confronting the same reality of what we call development and what it was actually doing to people. And we were looking for alternatives. So it was out of that that I ended up ultimately becoming one of the uh, world's known critics of the existing system of corporate rule. Many call capitalism, but it's really, it's a, a specific form of capitalism. The problem is not markets, it's not even private ownership, but it's the concentration of ownership in the hands of a very few people without rules to make sure that the market is serving the community and not just generating billionaires. So you, you just mentioned the deeply problematic, though often well-intentioned, sort of emphasis on development. And that reminds me of sort of a common phrase you're hearing, especially now, you know, with the United Nations, this notion of sustainable development. I'm curious if you could say a little bit about that. Does it have some of the same problems, even though it seems well-intentioned? Or, I mean, wh what do we do with this idea of sustainable development? To put it simply, uh, it's it's a case of fraud. You know, it it grows in part out of the you know the Club of Rome and the Limits to Growth study that came out in 1972, which lay you know I used computer models to demonstrate in a very sophisticated way what should be obvious to any sentient human being that infinite growth on a finite planet is not a possibility. <laughs> <laughs> it's a path to uh, environmental, social, economic collapse. Now, a lot of economists were very badly shaken by that at the time, and it was a great threat to them. So they were very eager to get around it. And they came up with this term sustainable development, which if you deconstruct it, you could say, well, 
we need to think of development as something totally different from growth. You know, take the human body. We, you know, we, we grow up through our adolescence. We stop our physical growth, but hopefully we continue our uh, mental maturing and the maturing of our judgment and our understanding, and we move gradually into elderhood. But hopefully we're not just putting on more weight at the same time. And, and that's kind of a difference. So you could say that there is a way of framing sustainable development that makes sense. Development as contrasted to growth. But what, what these clever economists have done is picked up the term sustainable development, which could be okay, but they equate it with sustained growth. So then they just kind of flip it around and say, well, we've got a problem with conventional growth, but we'll have sustainable growth. Now, I have not yet heard any credible explanation from anybody, economist or other, um, what would sustainable growth look like, which, you know, given the way that's measured, it's measured by, well, by two things, actually, increases in consumption. But the other deeper understanding of, of growth in GDP is that most of what GDP measures isn't even increase in consumption. It's just the monetization of relationships. So, I mean, to take a very you know, simple example from everyday life, if you cook your own dinner at home using things that you grew in your garden, you're not contributing anything to GDP unless you maybe you've used a little electricity on your stove cooking the cooking the food. If you go to a restaurant and buy your dinner, uh, you may be eating exactly the same food. So in a way, the same benefit to you, but somebody else is doing the preparation, you're paying somebody else for it. That counts as growth in GDP. So the more our families break down, the more we have single person households, the more we eat all our meals at McDonald's and meet all our other needs through Amazon or whatever, but we're always exchanging money in order to buy our water, our food, our, our health care, our uh, even you know entertainment or just the satisfaction of spending the evening with some other people. You know, we go out to the bar and <laughs> drink with a crowd or whatever. All of those things grow GDP, but the things that we do that in fact are are most beneficial to our health, which is the things we do as strong families and communities, because we care about each other, we enjoy each other, and they involve no particular dependence on money, that contributes nothing to GDP. So in a sense, the more we move ourselves towards psychological and social dysfunction, the more GDP grows. That's just part of the insanity of this, uh, this emphasis on, on GDP. And you know, the economists that, that flout the term, well, we'll just do sustainable development or sustainable growth, there's actually no, there's no legitimate basis for that claim. And we really have to watch out to not get sucked into that, uh, that misrepresentation. I think what I hear you saying is the need for just changing our, our, the way that we think, our value systems, that our, our goal is not even development in the sense of growth or increasing GDP or market activity, but it's increasing well-being, increasing quality of relationships, increasing 
something more uh, qualitative. Exactly. And, and that, of course, is on the level of, of kind of our daily life. But the other piece of it is we are living beings. We are born of and nurtured by a living earth. And our health and well-being ultimately depends on the health and well-being of that living earth. And the economists have paid no attention to that whatever. Their, their drive for growth is basically the faster we destroy the environment to uh, sell ourselves trees or you know, dig up toxic minerals and so forth, supposedly the better off we are, when in fact the worse off we are. It's fascinating if you look at the history of Earth and how this planet became distinctive among all the planets that we've yet been able to identify in its, the conditions on its surface. And the thing that we know that is different about this planet was that there was a period, we have very little idea how it happened, but when those microorganisms, somehow the earliest microorganisms, worked with Earth's geological processes to capture and sequester excess carbons from the air and toxins from the surface to bury them deep underground, which in all these different ways created the conditions essential to the emergence of more complex forms of life of which humans, at least intellectually and consciously, so far as we can tell, are the, are the most complex and in some ways the most advanced, although you could say we were also the most stupid because we have organized our whole society around extracting those carbons and toxins from deep underground and throwing them back into the environment thus paving the way to our own self-extinction. Now, if that isn't more than stupidity, <laughs> that would be the ultimate insanity. And here we have a whole discipline that we teach in respectable universities that says, you know, the faster we drive that process, the better off we're going to be. So, you know, our future. <laughs> very much depends on waking up to our own stupidity and saying, you know, we can do better than this. Yeah, and I hope we can. I, I hope so, too. <laughs> so let's talk about money. Uh, you had mentioned money uh, a moment ago. The um, green stuff. The, the green stuff, right? So uh, famous musicians like Cardi B talk about, oh, I want money. That's the thing I care about most. Um, but what exactly is money? And why are we controlled by it and drawn to it? And um, how do we free ourselves from it? Let me diverge a little bit here. When I grew up in my family with my dad, who was a businessman, and, and he always said, if you're not in business to serve your customers, who essentially serve the community, you have no business being in business. But he also liked money. And he would continuously tell me, time is money. Time is money. Okay, that's what I grew up with. A few years ago, I went to a kind of retreat that included a fellow from Bhutan, Karmat Satim, who was head of the uh, of Bhutan's Gross National Happiness Commission. So he gave us a little lecture on uh, Bhutan and their 
indicators and so forth. And he finished his lecture and he said, uh, time is life. Wow. Time is money. Time is life. Now that is profound. <laughs> do we live for money or do we live for life? That almost kind of the foundation of everything. But then coming back, what is money? Well, if you reach into your wallet, you can take out a piece of paper that has a, some numbers on it. So that's money. Okay, so money is a piece of paper with a number on it, big deal. Now you go the next step, most of our money now is not even on a piece of paper. And it's certainly not a number on a coin, on a piece of gold, which you could say, well, that's at least something real I can feel. But the vast majority of our money currently is nothing but numbers on a computer. You know, I could put them all on my cell phone and hold it up, but, you know, <laughs> what's that going to do for me? It basically, in, in our contemporary human societies, we have developed this concept of we've got these special sacred numbers, and we accept those in exchange for things of real value, like our land or our labor or even our ideas. And what happens is in daily life, in this kind of a society, we become so dependent on money, we begin to think of the money as the source of the value. And we totally forget that the money is of no use whatever unless there's something to exchange it for. <laughs> and the real value is in the things that we exchange it for. So just, you know, imagine yourself shipwrecked on a desert island someplace, and there's no trees, there's no water, there's no nothing here, but you manage to salvage this big trunk off of the ship that's full of gold coins. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> You're a very, very rich man. Good luck. <laughs> you know, in a way, it is so simple. It is so obvious. And yet, we've currently gone to this absolute extreme of creating a society in which almost everything in the society is organized around growing these numbers on computer hard drives, which the basic benefit of that is most of those digits, <laughs> those imaginary numbers are going into the accounts of billionaires who are getting more and more billions. I don't know, you know, it's hard to tell how, how rich Jeff Bezos is because it goes up and down by several billion dollars a day. But, you know, some people talk about 140 to 160 billion dollars and so forth. What's that? And we get these figures that, you know, the richest six individuals in the world now have wealth. That means financial assets that are greater than the total financial assets of half of humanity. You know, that's half of seven and a half billion people. How did we get to this place uh, with such immense inequality? By believing what the economists tell us, to put it bluntly, to believe that money is wealth, that making money is creating wealth. You know, the reigning economic ideology, you know, they insist that it's a values-free science. It's interesting. I, I've heard the famous economist Joseph Stiglitz actually refer to uh, mainstream economics as a faith-based religion. 
which is a very accurate characterization. You know, we go to the university and we take these courses, supposedly that we're learning the science of economics. We're learning the secrets of how you create rich societies to increase human well-being. But what they are is indoctrination in essentially, you know, the equivalent of a religious cult. You know, it's, it's interesting that religious cults, they separate themselves so far from reality that they, their own existence becomes very dependent on the, uh, a set of false beliefs, that it's all self-contained. Somehow, we have allowed ourselves to get seduced by this set of ideas. And it includes essentially a moral corruption of society. You know, if you look at the foundation of, of, of the beliefs, I mean, you know, even the economists are a little reluctant to say this too, uh, uh, too clearly in public. But the basic foundation of that ideology is that our only moral responsibility as an individual is to maximize our individual financial returns. And if you're maximizing your individual financial return, you are maximizing your contribution to the well-being of the whole society by making more money and, and the benefits of this will ultimately trickle down and everyone will be better off. And if we're having environmental problems, we'll discover the technologies and so forth to solve that problem. So if you're managing society to maximize returns to money, you know, one of the inevitable outcomes of that, first of all, if you don't have any money to start with, you don't get any financial return. If you happen to have, oh, say $150 billion in the bank, <laughs> and you're getting a financial return on that, you're getting a pretty nice return. You know, you're getting a few billion additional dollars every year, not bad. But of course, the people who don't have a billion dollars in the bank or the people that don't even have a penny in the bank or the even larger number of people that have uh, debts with the bank, <laughs> they're sinking ever deeper while these other folks are getting ever further away. So if you're running the economy to maximize returns to money, you can be absolutely certain that you will get an ever-growing gap between rich and poor. And you will be doing that in ways that will ultimately be destructive of the environment because the whole framework has absolutely nothing in it about uh, preserving the health and well-being of the living earth that our very existence depends on. So, I mean, one of the important parts of religion, including the religion of economics, are stories. Um, and one of your recent books, Change the Story, Change the Future, talks about the importance of story, of narrative, um, perhaps even of philosophies and worldviews. So how does changing our story, how does changing the way we think help change the world? One of the advantages of having lived in many different countries is the opportunity to immerse in many different cultures. So in this 
life that I've been able to live, and it's not so uncommon these days. Um, you know, when I was growing up, it was almost unimaginable. But living in and connecting with these different cultures in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, you begin to realize, wow, different cultures have extremely different belief systems about the nature of reality and about the nature of humans, what it means to be human and how we relate. Now, it's also interesting if you pay attention to the actual people, it's extraordinary that for all our differences in appearance and skin color and so forth, begin to realize that the commonalities are far greater than the differences. And they relate more to differences in the story than they do to any innate characteristics of being human. So when we ask the question, what is our human nature? I come down to the conclusion that it is our human nature to choose our nature by our choice of our story. Now, I do think there's a deeper dimension because what I realize is that if people haven't become distorted or misdirected by a essentially self-destructive story, most everyone in the world is actually very caring. They take care of each other, take care of their families, their neighbors, and they take care of the of, of the earth and the, the nature around them. Now, that's not true for all people, but the ultimate division is by the difference in stories, or as, you know, in any society, um, we may notice that some people in our society, some in positions of extreme power, are somewhat mentally deranged. But, you know, you think about it, those people who are incapable of compassion and true concern for others are people who are in fact mentally ill. So there is this mental health dimension, but then you get among people who are healthy mentally, the, the real key is, well, what is the story they live by? Now, we normally grow up within the story of our culture, just as I did the story that I grew up with in our little town of Longview. So it, it is part of the way we are, we evolved as humans because to live together in a community, uh, it's absolutely essential that we have a, an essentially shared story so that we understand each other and we can relate in ways that, uh, that cooperate and work for the whole. So it's very natural to immerse in our stories. But now, as we become more, as you become immersed in alternative stories, then you begin to realize, oh, it is a choice. And that's where we're at as a species now, that we are, we have pulled together, we're an, we are a, a global society. And as long as there is a human species, unless we fall totally back into uh, isolated little tribes as as what we call civilization collapses, we will remain interconnected. So that gives us an awareness of our stories, but it also we now need a strong recognition that it gives us a responsibility to choose our stories. And that needs to have two dimensions. One, 
what stories best reflect reality, however we live has got to be attuned to reality in contrast to what the economists would have us believe. But the other is the question, well, which choices of beliefs within our understanding of reality are likely to lead to the, to the best outcomes for all of us? And not just for, for me or, or for you and I, but for the whole of humanity and for all the generations to come. So in a way, that's what I see we're working out now. We're, we're, we're trying to arrive at and understand uh, these deeper stories. What is reality? And among our choices in relation to reality, which ones will give us the, the best life for, for everyone in all the years to come? What would you say is our, our civilization's dominant story today, and what, what alternative would you recommend? Yeah, there's kind of two dimensions of it. There's, there's one, the, the dimension that comes, comes out of science, and it, you know, it comes out of the, the Enlightenment, or what some of us now call the First Enlightenment, which was where science tried to, to pull away from pure superstition and tried to more systematically understand what we now realize is understanding the material world or the, the material dimension of our experience. And in the process of trying to get that focus clear, they essentially ended up denying the existence of spirit, intelligence, and consciousness. So it was essentially a process of looking at all of reality as a machine and trying to explain everything by some combination of mechanism and chance. We've gotten significant benefit from that mechanistic story, but by denying intelligence, consciousness, and agency, it denies that which in fact not only makes us human, it's what makes us a living being. And most particularly, it strips us of our agency. And if we do not have a sense of our agency, then we have no sense of responsibility. Now, you take that and our contemporary mainstream economics has essentially built on that frame. It also denies consciousness choice. Economists claim that they have a, created a values-free science. Now, this is a science about how we make choices about how we're going to live. That's supposed to be values-free. And if we base all those choices totally not on what will be best for my loved ones or best for future generations or best for creation, but what will get me the most money in the next few minutes, that is not a values-free choice. So the combination of that mechanistic worldview then with a cultish religion that teaches us to value only money and short-term financial outcomes. You put those two together and it leads to really deep problems for humanity. And the rest um, of the non-human world. <laughs> and the rest of the non-human world. And if you recognize that, you know, we now realize that, well, the, science, the astronomers tell us there are now something like two trillion galaxies. And you know, I think at a deep spiritual level, I say, you know, you want to know what the spirit of creation or God or whatever you want to call it, 
what its intention is? Well, what is creation doing? Well, the best of our understanding, it started out with a big glass gas cloud and a big bang. And since then, it's been unfolding toward ever greater complexity, beauty, awareness, and possibility. That seems to be its intention. And somewhere along the line in this process, it created this extraordinary planet with this extraordinary beauty and with all these incredibly conscious, self-organizing species and organisms that gave birth to this organism we call human that has all of this extraordinary potential to understand and to contribute to the well-being and the unfolding of all. And yet we are using it in ways that are not only destructive of ourselves and destructive of life on this earth, it is actually a crime against creation. So to, to me, a key to moving forward is simply to recognize the truth that is self-evident. So the key to moving forward is just simply wake up. Yeah, it seems like there are, are a few small but just fundamental shifts that we could be taking you know, part in. And one is a shift from just the prioritization of money is the only value that I care about and increasing money is what I'm driven toward. Shifting from that to, you know, concern about well-being of your friends, your family, yourself, the planet, future generations. But that sense of, okay, well, if my primary goal is the flourishing of life and the overall well-being, physical and mental, then what sort of action should I be doing that would lead to that path? What sort of systems and structures should our society have to get us to that goal? Um, and that's the, the shift I hear you describing. You had said earlier this sort of obvious insight that we humans are born of and nurtured by a living earth. And that changes everything. <laughs> yeah. And I want to hear a little bit more on how you think we get from that just basic recognition of, of being born of and nurtured by a living earth and how we go from that to the emergence of these new forms of human communities that are capable of promoting a more sustainable, equitable, and peaceful world a world that you've described before as, you know, one of material sufficiency and spiritual abundance. Well, if we recognize that, the, that it is the distinctive role of, of religion to be the institution through which we develop our, our highest and deepest insights into the nature of reality and creation, and what the implications are for how we live. There's an extraordinary possibility here. Now then we've got our education institutions. You know, this is where we <laughs> grow up and we go to class and we're learning the essential things that supposedly need to live. Now, uh, our educational institutions have in many ways become very abstracted from reality. They take, they take young people out of the community, put them in behind these walls, and tend to teach them, in, in most instances, some combination of the mechanistic worldview 
and the immoral morality of economics, which keeps getting ever more exposure in our universities and even our high schools. But if we begin to wake up as a species and begin to realize those are false stories, we are in deep trouble because these absolutely foundational institutions have either become distracted or corrupted and need to transform. And then imagine that our educational institutions engaged in conversation with our religious institutions and began to come together around a new understanding of reality that grows out of the most advanced of our life sciences, our deepest understanding of how life unfolds and how living organisms organize themselves to create and maintain the conditions of their own existence. And imagine that our religious institutions were keying into that, and they then become the institutions that help us each in our daily life to integrate these very, very deep lessons common to us as a species and integrate them into our understanding uh, not only of how we live our daily lives but also how we rethink our fundamental politics through which we make our decisions in common about how we're going to live so anyhow it's yeah. it's it's a huge huge challenge uh it's it's amazing that so much of it begins with discussion now, there's also a lot of action because it requires a lot of action in local places everywhere, uh, having these conversations, not just to talk, but also to make choices about how people live and organize together locally. It can be overwhelming for people to hear um, that not only do we need to sort of cultivate a new consciousness, um, changing our stories, changing our values, uh, which we've been talking about, but we also need to establish new systems and sort of structures of society on civilizational scale. I feel like a lot of times people are overwhelmed by that. And it's like, okay, well, what do I as an individual do? How can I help promote what I think you, you've been calling an ecological civilization? And what I hear you describing now are ways for us to begin to think about how the local is connected to the global through communities of communities and how the individual is not isolated, but is a part of these sort of living systems that we call cities and societies. It, it absolutely is overwhelming. But in part, it's overwhelming because we don't talk about it. But we don't talk about it because it's overwhelming. So breaking the silence is key. Yeah. Now, one of the things that gives me a sense of hope is that I feel something has happened very recently to me, I can almost trace it back to kind of mid-November of, of 2018, very short time ago as we speak here, that there's been an opening to have these conversations. You know, sort of like the message of most environmental groups really tends to be toward the negative, focusing on the, the seriousness of our global crisis. And that, you know, that's important. Um, but then I think that people... Um, are actually more likely to be drawn toward uh, new possibilities if they're inspired by hope. Uh, and you were getting ready to explain a little bit about why you think there's a reason to be positive about the future. 
and that the sense that there maybe is a paradigm shift that is possible and that something is, is, is emerging right now. Can you say a little about that? In, in a sense, I think it's, you know, I think it's a result of, of people realizing uh, how desperate our situation is and being clear that our formal institutions, particularly our current U.S. government, are not going to, uh, to deal with, uh, with that crisis. And it, it opens people up to a conversation that has never really been possible before, partly because it is so big and so overwhelming. But now people are beginning to realize it is absolutely essential. Now, that I think is the key that we we can't get beyond this until we until we talk about it, and the real change is is not going to come from within the institutions that their you know their credibility and their power rests on the existing systems of domination. So it, it's through these deeper conversations and the challenging of our traditional modes of, of organizing and of problem solving that is our source of hope. Now, it is a great challenge of how do we get into these conversations a sense of possibility? And I think I think a starting point there is for people to recognize that most people are generous. Most people are concerned about the future of their children. Most people would rather have a strong and healthy community than necessarily have the latest, biggest TV sits so they can sit sit alone in the dark in their isolated apartment and distract themselves from the uh, the tragedies unfolding around them. So it 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 is that sense of possibility, but it, it's it's very different from a conventional sense of hope. It's not sitting around hoping that if I pray a little bit, you know, God will fix it. It, it. it is a hope that's that's grounded in a recognition that we humans can actually do better and that we have more and more people who are opening up, engaging in the conversation in which we communicate to each other our mutual desire to do better. And sharing lessons of what we're learning about engaging these conversations in our own communities and coming together as communities in uh, uh, in ways that give us a possibility of working together very differently. I think we're beginning to see it at the national level in conversations that recognize that neither of our two traditional parties in their existing composition are going to address the the issues, that essentially we need a new breed of politicians moving in and taking over one or preferably both parties or putting in rules that, that change the voting rules in ways that uh, that make it possible for third and fourth parties to uh, gain a foothold. Anyhow, these are all conversations that are beginning to burst forth now and I think are a sign of hope. Absolutely. And, you know, I think there's a big difference between the recognition that we need to change and then the realization that we can change. And that's the kind of hope that, that you're talking about, that this yes. this transformation is possible. Uh, and we're beginning to see it now. 
Yeah, and the conversation is a demonstration of the possibility, because obviously if we're not discussing it, then it's hard to see where possibility lies. And the truth is, uh, there is no possibility if we're not discussing it. Well, I thank you for being a part of this conversation, and um, not just with me, but expanding these discussions out into the public sphere. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you wanted to add, something that you feel like is, is missing? Well, the possibilities are endless because <laughs> the you know what makes this daunting is essentially everything has to change. But I have seen in my lifetime these situations that show how fast deep changes in human societies are possible. The end of conventional colonialism, which sort of centered around the, the fall of or the independence of uh, of India the fall of the Soviet Union and the fall of apartheid in South Africa. Now, we need something here on a much larger scale with a much more positive outcome and you know, built on a sense of possibility. But uh, I do think it's possible and I do think it's happening. Are there some things in our contemporary setting and uh, our, our current story, our, our dominant framework that we should consider keeping, or is it really a, a matter of starting over? Well, there's certainly a lot of, a lot of knowledge that goes very deep and, you know, including embracing the wisdom of many uh, indigenous communities of the importance of community and actually, in, you know, in Africa, they have this phrase Ubuntu which essentially translates, I am because we are. I mean, this is an ancient uh, recognition that the individual does not exist without the community of life, without the earth, without all the beings. So there are these kind of eternal and deep truths that we can re-embrace and obviously, we really can't change everything, but the things that we need to change are, are pretty big and pretty fundamental given our current circumstance. But as you said, it's encouraging to see that the recognition that we need this deep fundamental change, that this conversation is taking place more and more regularly throughout the world, and that steps are starting to be um, discussed and taken by a lot of local communities, city leaders. So there is a reason to think with some hope, some realistic hope. I think there is. Yeah. Because it's partly recognizing that because so much of this centers on a story, the story can change very quickly. And that then is the key to the change of everything else. Well, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Your insights are always illuminating. Thank you for this opportunity to, uh, to share. 